breaking news and trending talk with Mike and McCarty. Mornings on 1017 FM and 710 Kiel. On a 1-7 FM, 710 Keel, Mike and McCarty, Louis R. Avalone, guest hosting with me this morning while Erin is recuperating from her shoulder surgery. Uh, in studio with us this morning, Dr. Philip Roseman, a local cardiologist and education advocate, and uh, Dr. Laura Cassidy, who... Um, a medical doctor in Baton Rouge, and we've got your husband coming on, by the way, later this morning. Uh, and she's in here. You founded the Louisiana Key Academy in Baton Rouge. Is that correct? Yes. Ten years ago, uh, Louisiana Key Academy, a charter school for children with dyslexia, opened its doors. We have a second school in uh, Covington on the North Shore, and then this will be our third school here in Caddo Parish, serving all the local parishes. And, uh, Philip, we talked about this before, and my, my first question was, are there enough students to fill an entire school, uh, you know, that, that, that suffer with dyslexia? I was surprised at the number of people. Yeah, I was too. Uh, when I first began to learn this, about 20% of uh, students will have some form of dyslexia, and it can be moderately and severe and maybe 10%. So we're talking about a huge group of people that have significant problems. When we first started to do this and I started to go around talking about this school here in Caddo Parish, I was shocked at some of the people uh, that had struggled with dyslexia who are very successful today, but only so because they were able to get the help that they needed when they were young. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so this is, uh, uh, this is something that's really needed because this is, uh, because uh, it's very expensive on a private level, and we're talking about a public school to serve dyslexic children. So there won't be a cost to parents for their children to, uh, to be able to go to uh, this a, school, Louisiana Key Academy. It's a public school, like any other public school. It's a charter school. This is amazing. It is. Uh, I, it is very innovative. They don't even have this in Texas. So uh, we're, we're ahead in that regard. We're being very innovative. Now, the location, uh, tell us about uh, you're, you're taking an existing, uh, now empty school, in rehabbing that facility? We were lucky, uh, I think, in kind of happening upon and having Arthur Circle School having been closed about 10 years ago uh, by the school system because there wasn't a need for it at the time. Uh, but we're resurrecting and remodeling uh, Arthur Circle School in Broadmoor, and that is a great location. Uh, for this school it's a it's a very safe location it's in a a, a part of town that's very accessible not only to people from Cato, but as laura said this is also bozier and webster DeSoto, all around i think in baton rouge they serve about 12 parishes in that school and people come from new orleans to baton rouge to have their kids in the school at the louisiana key academy and that was going to be my next question. And, Louis, you jump in if you want. No, I was just asking, what other locations around the state do we have these types of uh, facilities? 
Right. So our, our our flagship is in Baton Rouge. It's been there for 10 years. And then we have the second school in Covington, which is finishing its first year. And then we'll have the one here in Caddo. Are there other locations planned? Yes. We hope to have about um, uh, at least five or six schools across the state over so, the next five years. And, Philip, you just mentioned a moment ago, this is not just for... Caddo Parish, is it? These are going to be, you're going to be able to, we've got construction in the building. You can probably hear they're still working. Uh, but the, the, you'll be able to draw, it, it's not a, a district-focused uh, facility. Yeah, that's what's wonderful about it is that it's going to cover Pleasure. a lot of, North, it'll cover North Louisiana uh, for now. And and I think there's a lot of students in Bossier and Webster and DeSoto that have this problem with dyslexia. And that what I've watched as I've given talks about this in various uh, community areas is people find out about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, People who have uh, reading difficulties with their children, who love their children, and that's all parents, okay, they look for a a way to help them. And this school um, has really is a bright light. Uh, and how we can do that here in North Louisiana. I'm I'm just thankful that that Laura and the group decided that Shreveport would be the next place to go, and we've tried very hard to try to uh, introduce this and appreciate y'all introducing this to the community. Well, uh, I'm, I think this is a fantastic idea, uh, Dr. Cassidy. Tell me a little bit about the uh, how this. You know, first of all, for those not familiar. Uh, you know, dyslexia goes further than just you know, letters being inverted. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit about the effects of dyslexia. Right. I think it's hard for people to understand. But mm-hmm. So the easiest way is to talk about how you would see it in your child. These are bright kids, average to above average intelligence. Uh, they might have delay, speech delay when they're two or three years old. So they go to a speech therapist. They have a difficult time rhyming. They have a difficult time learning and remembering the alphabet. Their spelling is terrible and their reading is slow and can be difficult. And again, they're bright kids. So you're, it's confusing to people because mm-hmm. this is a, because you think, well, they're they're subpar intelligent, right? Right. But you think about Einstein, who didn't, you know, learn how to uh, speak and read to much later, and that just tells you they're they're not correlated in dyslexia. So, are, are there tests done at a at a young age for for students to to start screening this? So, our recommendation is screening for dyslexia at the end of kindergarten, and then we take those that look like they're at risk. For dyslexia, and we test those children that would want to come to the school for free mm-hmm. uh, because it costs you know several thousand dollars to get that done in the private sector. So there is a screening at the end of kindergarten. If we can get these kids in first grade, that's ideal. And uh, again, we offer uh, testing if it looks like you would want to come to the school. And we're starting that this morning, actually. And so, who is funding? all of this expense you mentioned how expensive it is in the private sector right so we the money follows the child for public schools so we get the money like all public schools do we also do a lot of fundraising and so the community here has been incredibly gracious but we put the money we get from the state and the local taxes your your local property taxes help for that in the classroom and so for the facilities, et cetera, we do fundraising. 
And you know, we've been able to raise a good bit of money uh, in our community just when you talk about this because many of the people that uh, can give money uh, are, have been dyslexia and have, have been able to deal with that. And, and so it's a real uh, uh, significant way that way. The other thing I think is very interesting when you think about this dyslexia is our jail population has 50% percentage of dyslexia. So if we could just teach children how to read and overcome dyslexia and become literate by the third grade, we're going to reduce the issues that we have in our even our uh, public safety sector. That is so fascinating. Talk a little bit about staff. Obviously, you want staff that is uh, familiar with this and how to teach uh, you know, because obviously it's it's not a, a normal teaching method. Right. So Pam Barker, who is a local uh, veteran educator here in Baton Rouge, she is going to be the principal. She is the principal now. All, and she's going through our training program, which is a two-year training program. Uh, we will be posting on Indeed for teachers and the qualifications, and then they will all go through teacher training this summer, begin that teacher training. Mm-hmm. It is called uh, Certified Academic Language Therapy, and it is a career path for teachers that want to do something uh, added to get more expertise. So it's a great, I think it's a great avenue for teachers. So it, go ahead, Phil. And, and to add to that, I think that learning, that training, uh, will can also go further than just at our at the school at Louisiana Key Academy. But that kind of expertise in the community can be shared with the traditional school system. And so I think there's a lot of potential there where there's some learning to go on uh, on on how to deal with dyslexia and the reading difficulties and. Uh, all of the schools in Caterpillar. When do you guys uh, expect to be open? August, 1st of August. So this year? Yes, yes. We're looking to get it going. Right, and so we're recruiting students now, and we'll be posting on Indeed for teachers. Uh, we're already posting for some positions now. So if parents want to find out they think their child might be at risk, what is their next move? So the best way is to go to the website at lkaschools.com. That's lkaschools.com, and you can read about dyslexia, and then you can go to the Caddo parish uh school tab and there is an online application if you want to talk to somebody about it pam's number here is 318-752-6257 that's 752-6257 One seven FM seven ten Keel Mike and McCurdy Aaron. I talked to her yesterday. Um, she's doing well. Scott Hughes, by the way. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. In for Aaron. In who's doing well, according to Word of the Street. She, she was she, at the movies. She was at the. She went to a movie yesterday, and she was at the Y. Now she said she didn't get in the water. Did she played basketball. And she was <laughs> shooting. I, she's all over town. I told her. I said after I saw that picture of her at the pool, and she said she didn't get in. She just did some leg work because she can't move her arm. She had uh, shoulder surgery. Uh, I said, this looks like somebody that can come back to work. (laughs) I think this is the problem with the economy today. We have people who won't work. (laughs) Some of us have to do two jobs. You have two jobs. She said, yep, I leave here and go to to my studio and and work till 5 
five thirty, six, seven, ten at night. Uh, no, I don't. But no, no. Um, we're when joking. I, it's when a I corporate do, thing. I think she has to get medical clearance before when, she can come. When back. I do theater, I I am out. You know, yes, till all nights of the morning. Uh, time the yeah. morning. but that, no, that's true. She has to have a, a. She has to get her clearance, and the doctor said it was uh, probably going to be Thursday before she gets her clearance. You but can't enter construction zone without medical clearance. <laughs> it, and and it is that here. Although they're coming along. The, the, guy, the guys and ladies, uh, they're doing the job yeah. in your building. They work hard. They're doing a good job. Yeah. Jackson Construction doing a fantastic job, by the way. Uh, coming up, uh, we spoke with uh, Senator Bill Cassidy yesterday. Uh, Louis Avalone was in with us, so you'll prob- you might hear his voice in that as well. And uh, he, he spoke with us about the uh, Chinese spy balloon that, that uh, <laughs> traveled our entire country and uh, also uh, Social Security and, and other things. And you'll hear that conversation at 640. Mike McCarty with Scott Hughes, 1017 FM. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keel Mike and McCarty and uh I spoke with uh Dew Thompson yesterday, the attorney for Alexander Tyler, Shreveport police officer, uh charged with negligent homicide in the death of uh Alonzo Bagley. Dew's a former um Keller Parish assistant district attorney. Mm-hmm. Um actually saw him last night on some of the national news channels. This is a national news story now. And uh he's going to uh, he's gonna talk with us later this morning. Uh, you said you've kind of done a little bit. We just have about a minute. You've, you've done a little bit of research, though, on the charge. Uh, first, I'm not an attorney. just want to clarify that. But, yes, when I saw the video, when I saw the charges, the charge is negligent, negligent homicide. And there's two definitions of negligent homicide. One deals with when you own an animal and the animal you know, kills somebody. So that's not, not, not viable. The other is the killing of a human being by criminal negligence. That's the definition. So then you have to go look under the statutes of criminal negligence, and that definition is criminal negligence exists when although there is neither specific nor general criminal intent, Mm -hmm. there is such disregard of the interest of the others that the offender's conduct amounts to a gross deviation of the standard of care expected. I think that's where they're going to go with this charge. Okay. It's accidental. It, it, it was, and they're saying it's below what would be expected in that situation. If you've seen the body cam footage, we've got it on uh, uh, keelnews.com. Louisiana uh, State Police released it yesterday. They they released it with uh, with a, a description and a definition of what you know everything that happened. They they outlined everything. It's a very to excellent their, presentation by the state their police. investigation. Yes, everything from the nine one one call to both body cams of the officers. Everything's there presented neutrally. Yes, and. You can tell he was surprised. The officer was surprised. Uh, it's just, it's a tragic situation all the way around. The original description, I remember this happened back February 3rd or 4th. The original description was the officer was chasing the individual and he rounds a corner in pursuit and fires one shot that hits the suspect in the chest. That was the description we were given. When you watch the video, he really doesn't see, he doesn't know where the suspect is. Mm-hmm. And so he's chasing him behind a building. And it's like he runs by a little alcove that would go up in the building. Yes. And as he gets even with the corner of the alcove, he realizes that the suspect is right there, like literally 
two feet from him yeah. around this corner, and he reacts. I'll just say that. He reacts. And obviously the reaction is a shot. It hits him, and um, the guy goes down. And from that moment, um, they do attempt CPR. They attempt to save the guy. They're in shock. You can, you can actually hear the ambulance in the background. You can hear the EMS yes. already on its way. But unfortunately, he dies of that shot. It's it's heart wrenching. Uh, we we will speak with uh, Dew Thompson later this morning. Uh, Scott Hughes in for Aaron McCarty. One on one. We've got to. Uh, One hundred one seven FM, seven ten Kiel. Mike and McCarty with Lewis R. Abalone from American Ground Radio, sitting in for Aaron this morning, and on the Jack Spring Electric Newsmaker Hotline this morning, uh, we welcome Senator Bill Cassidy. Good morning, Senator. Thanks for uh, talking with us this morning. I know you've got a busy schedule. Hey, thank you. I understand y'all have had some great guests this morning. So. Uh... Uh, anyway, good for your program. Thank you so much. It's been a busy day. Look, I want to ask you about <laughs> basically who who is in charge? How how do we let a Chinese spy balloon traverse our entire country and then start willy nilly shooting things down after that? What's what's going yeah, on, go, Senator? Don't, just, don't go flying the kite right now, brother. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um. You know, um, what we're told is that there was a gap in how our satellites looked at things. Uh, And so as things would come across Alaska, that um, our our intelligence didn't kind of have its, whatever you call it, sensors, its cameras pointed all over the place. And somebody knew how to exploit that. Clearly, the People's Republic, excuse me, the Chinese Communist Party did, and they would send things through that gap. Um, now, as you might guess, the people who are paid to defend us, um, people such as those at Barksdale, but they are now redirecting their assets to be able to pick up these sorts of objects. In the meantime, they're picking up things like, you know, the size of an ATV floating across Lake Huron. We don't know what those things are. We don't know if there's something similar to the spy balloon, much smaller, uh, or whether it is just like, you know, somebody, you know, Google put up a weather balloon and it kind of escaped its tether and now it's kind of floating out there. We don't know that. Uh, or at least if we, if we know uh, the Defense Department's not telling anybody. Uh, so uh, that's kind of where we are, Mike. Well, and that's another thing that's very disturbing is the lack of transparency. Uh, Senator Bill Cassidy on the Jack Spring Electric Newsmaker Hotline. The president, they, he's ordered three other objects they, that they apparently don't know what they are, which I don't believe. Um, but he hasn't addressed the nation at all explaining what's going on. Yeah, I don't think the president wants that sort of back and forth with reporters. He prefers a much more controlled situation in which he can get prepared comments and limit questions. You've got lots of questions. Everyone has lots of questions. This president does not want to field wide-ranging questions. I don't think he feels like he can handle it. Senator Cassidy, do you think it's time that Joe Biden step down? Well, I thought it was time for him to step down when he got elected four years ago or two years ago. Uh, but if, 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 if what you're asking, uh, do I think that the president is capable of being president? 
um, he's not the same man he was eight years ago. That's pretty evident to everybody. Uh, he's obviously got a team around him, gives him a great deal of assistance. Uh, the American people are the ones who are going to decide whether he stays in office. I will be voting for somebody different. Well, it's 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 disturbing. We look weak in the eyes of the world. Um, it's embarrassing that we have a commander in chief that is is not commanding anything. Well, I also though I have a little bit more optimism than perhaps you do, Mike, because people don't just look at our commander in chief. They look at the ability of our armed services. Um, so I'm thinking of the folks at Barksdale, Fort Polk, etc. Uh, they look at the ability of our airmen, of our soldiers, Marines, and uh, naval personnel, our clandestine services as well, and there is no one in the world who is better. So I agree that our uh, commander-in-chief uh, is, frankly, weak. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, the, um, uh, uh, the, the sophistication of our weaponry and the commitment of our armed services is greater than anybody else in the world. And I think ultimately that trumps anything else. Well, and it's interesting you say that because I I feel the same way. I don't think we're second to anybody when it comes to our military and our capabilities, which leads me to believe that this wasn't an accident that this, this balloon was able to travel the entire breadth of our nation taking photographs, video, information, and sending it back to China. Um, How did we not know this was happening? I don't believe we didn't know. Well, what I don't know uh, is um, uh, satellites. Now, maybe they were more interested in radio transmissions uh, because satellites take pictures from outer space in which you can see people next to cars. It is incredible, the optics on satellite cameras. So, so it may be that they're more interested in hearing signals. Uh, you can imagine the military, once they detected it, would have been shutting down any communications that could have been picked up. But the point is that these are things that we should not allow to happen. And, uh, and what I hear from the armed services is that they have a commitment to, making, to, to adapting their systems so that they can better detect these things floating across. Uh, Senator, uh, talking with uh, Bill Cassidy, I want to change gears just a moment. Uh, We just had a a candidate for insurance commissioner for the state of Louisiana on a few moments ago, and and he mentioned flood insurance and our risk rating at 2.0. You're working on uh, also the the challenge of being able to get affordable flood insurance for the state of Louisiana. Tell us what you're working on. Absolutely. This is an issue that affects everybody across that state. I remember in 2016 being with Sheriff Whittington out on the Red River, and I said, Julian, is that the bank? He goes, that's not the bank. Uh, there's the bank. There was so, the water was so high you couldn't tell where the bank was unless you happen to know the outlines of the river to begin with. So the Biden administration has put in a, um, a, a rating, a, a, a way to increase premiums for the flood insurance program, which, which will increase premiums by 18% per year. Now, the first year you can handle that, maybe the second, but this is compounding. So I use the example. I gave a speech on the floor of a, a family of the bourgeois from Raceland. They've never flooded. They don't live in a floodplain. They're 83 years old. Uh, they're paying $500 a year for flood insurance. 
that when fully implemented, they'll be paying more than $500 a month. Now, at that time, it'll be four or five years from now, but they'll be in their late 80s on a fixed income, and they'll be paying $6,000 a year for flood insurance. And they've never flooded and don't live in a floodplain. Now, this is punitive. This is not going to work. So one thing we're working on, a variety of things. First, we've got a short-term, an intermediate, and long-term plan. Short-term, we're asking the administration to cap that 18% at something more reasonable than 9%. You're still raising premiums. It still compounds. It's not 18%. Secondly, we've got a piece of legislation we're putting forward with a senator from New Jersey. Two parties, two regions, increases our chance of getting it passed. We're working to pass that legislation to make the program more affordable, more sustainable, sustainable, more accountable. Lastly, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that I worked on, we had provisions in there with $3 billion going to mitigate the risk of flooding, prioritizing areas of our country that have flooded in the last 10 years. I'm told Louisiana has submitted about 50% of the claims to the National Flood Insurance Program, so our state will disproportionately benefit. There's also $3 billion to, uh, for coastal restoration and flood mitigation on the coastline. And so that also helps decrease our premiums because if Cameron Parish or if Lafourche and Terrebonne mm-hmm. are less likely to flood, there's less stress on the flood insurance program. Gotcha. So both in the short, intermediate, long term, we're trying to address this issue. All right, just to shift gears uh, once again, I know you're concerned about Social Security and Medicare, making sure that those trust funds remain solvent. I want to hear what the Congress is doing to do that, what you are doing to do that. But first, why is President Biden lying to the American people, saying that Republicans are seeking to sunset Social Security, to cut Medicare, when clearly you and other Republicans in Congress are doing the exact opposite? So, Lewis, the president on a State of the Union, hang on, guys, excuse me, my sneeze, the president, excuse me, the Bless president, you. thank you, and a State of the Union speech basically said he's running for election. Not the same guy he was eight years ago. Not sure where he's going to be in six more years, but he's going to run for re-election. And he's going to use Social Security as a wedge issue. He's choosing to be dishonest to the American people. He's acting like Social Security is in good shape and you don't have to do anything and people still get their benefits. But in about six or eight years, in about six or eight years, the program goes insolvent and by current law, beneficiaries, those getting benefits right now, will see their benefits cut by 24 to 27%. Now, the president didn't say that. By the way, there's other issues. In our state, our workers, uh, uh, state and local workers, are affected by something called weapon GPO. We need to fix that. He doesn't want to touch that either. He wants to pretend that all's hunky-dory so that he can get reelected. It is dishonest to the American people. That's not a surprise. It is a lie. Yes. We've well, got the, to fix it. I know We've you, got a plan that preserves benefits, but also addresses these issues.
101.7 FM, 710 Keel. Mike and McCarty, Aaron out. Uh, thank goodness it's Friday. Uh, she'll be back. I think I think we, we're still waiting to get a release, but it possibly may, might be Thursday. But uh, I'm, I'll talk with her over the weekend and see if she uh, gets an early release. Scott Hughes in studio with us this morning. Uh, we were talking off mic uh, about the the politicians in in Louisiana, but we we we've got to we've got to do that on air because uh, you got some great analogies. You got you got a busy day today though. We got guests coming up, and it's Mardi Gras Friday, Mike. It is the big Mardi Gras Friday, the final weekend before Fat Tuesday. Two big parades this weekend. I'm looking forward. To it. Thanks for coming in again this morning. Glad to be here. And uh, and and we'll uh, we'll go get biscuits. <laughs> biscuits, yes. One hundred one seven FM. One hundred one seven FM. Seven ten Keel. Mike and McCarty with Lewis R. Avaloni in for air and also in studio with us this morning. Tim Temple. Candidate for Insurance Commissioner for the state of Louisiana. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Mike. You're making the rounds? Making the rounds. It's good to meet you. Uh, First time, so I couldn't meet Aaron, but I'm glad I'm here in the studio because I get to see an old face from the past, Lewis. Well, it's not that old, (laughs) but it is from the past. It's as old as mine. (laughs) Now, Now, you're running for Insurance Commissioner. I am. Tell us a little bit about Tim Temple, first of all. Sure. You've uh, never run for political office before. I, I ran for commissioner in 2019. It was the first time I'd ever run for any okay. office, uh, statewide office as well. But I uh, grew up in DeRitter, grew up in, the ins- in an insurance family, uh, worked in the industry over 20 years. And over that 20-year period, I wore a lot of different hats in, mm-hmm. in, in, the, uh, in the industry. My father and his partner started a company called Amerisafe. So I got to see, you know, through his eyes, an insurance agent and then an insurance company owner, I started off as an insurance agent, actually here in Shreveport, uh, in, in the in the mid '90s, if you okay. will, early to mid '90s. Uh, so started cut my teeth in the insurance industry here in Shreveport, and over the like I said, the, almost the next 20 years, I wore a lot of different hats: insurance agent. Uh, I was in the reinsurance business. I was a reinsurance broker, and you hear reinsurance being talked about a lot with our current crisis. Uh, I was uh, part of a large commercial trucking MGA management team. Worked for a large TPA doing claims administration. Worked for one of the largest catastrophe claims uh, adjusting firms in the country. Uh, so I've worn a lot of different hats, and I've seen insurance from almost all the angles. Now, our current insurance commissioner has been in office, what, what 17 he, years? He's going on 17 years in that seat, and he's been at the department for 23 years. So what? Decades. So what was your impetus saying? I I want to I want to run for insurance commissioner. I, I I can do a better job. Well, Mike, you know I, when I ran in nineteen, uh, the the issue then is still the same. It's just amplified today, and that's that we were facing an insurance crisis. You know, four years ago. Uh, obviously, it's a lot bigger crisis than it is uh, you know today than it was in nineteen. But it it didn't change the facts. I mean, you know, here in, in North Louisiana. You're facing a homeowner's crisis today, which they were starting to face, you know, four years ago. We're all facing, you know, uh, private passenger auto. Louisiana is the most expensive state mm-hmm. in America for private passenger auto. I was going to bring that up. And, and, and it has been. And that's a crisis. It's not one that happened because of hurricanes. That's just it's, – it's built up over the last 15, 17 years. Um, you know, we've got a, a flood our, our flood program, our national flood program, and, and I, I know I've he- I hear it all the time that that's not something that the Department of Insurance, the commissioner, regulates. 
but that doesn't mean you can't advocate for change. And we need to advocate for change. It's it's forcing families in South Louisiana out of their homes because they can't afford the flood insurance. On top of you can't afford your homeowner's insurance. On top of your auto insurance is so expensive. And then, you know, I think the fourth, uh, you know, leg of the chair, if you will, on our insurance crisis is commercial trucking. And, you know, you see it and, and your listeners are experiencing it here. I mean, there's, there's log trucks, there's big trucks, you know, running the roads, hauling, you know, uh, oil field supply equipment and that kind of stuff. They're paying some of the highest rates in the country if they can find someone to write those those type of trucks. And, again, that's not a crisis that just started this year. It's been brewing for a long time, and we just seem to keep sticking our head in the sand, trying to do the same old thing, and that's not working. And, quite frankly, Louisianans, we can't afford it anymore. Now, the state legislature just concluded a very special session. Its sole purpose of convening was to address the insurance crisis in our state. Insurance Commissioner Jim Donnellan's plan uh, was to place $45 million into a state fund to incentivize insurance companies to write policies in Louisiana. Was that the right solution? I'll tell you, it was a step, but I think it was a misplaced step. You know, the, the, the incentive program, so let's, if you look at that, we're taking $45 million of taxpayer money, and allocating it, giving it to for-profit companies. It was done in 2006, 7, and 8. And back then, I think the, the governor had allocated $100 million. That was after Katrina and Rita. So we had another homeowner's crisis back then. And the intent then was to bring new companies to Louisiana to write primarily in South Louisiana. I think of the $100 million, roughly 30 or $29 million was 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 used, utilized. Five companies came in. Looking back at that program, I mean, it, uh, I think you have to admit it was flawed. It brought in five companies. One has gone insolvent. One left the state. And, you know, it said that the success was that dozens of companies came in after those, you know, those five initial companies and wrote, you know, insurance in Louisiana. Well, let's fast forward to today. In a 12-month period, we had four hurricanes. We've had 11 companies go insolvent. We've had dozens more leave the state. So did that pro- what did that program really accomplish? When there wasn't any storm activity, yeah, those companies were happy to be in the state of Louisiana. But when we need them, when you know you, the listener, when you know when you're when you've had a storm and your roof is gone, where have those companies gone? They've left. So it was a great program when there wasn't a need for it, but when you have the true need, those companies aren't here anymore. So I, I think it was a flawed program, and we're just reinventing the wheel. And if you look at the companies that they've said that are interested in the program, I think I, I hear eight, I've heard 10. Yesterday I heard 12 companies have expressed interest. I think most of them, or seven or eight, it said, are already in Louisiana. So we're not incentivizing new companies to come in. We're just handing money to companies that are already here. And look, I, I want those companies to be here and be profitable and continue to write business. But if they're already here, what are we really doing? So what would you do differently than Commissioner Donnellan? And I, and I know it's a multi-faceted approach so maybe what is the number if you had called this special session together as insurance commissioner what would you have hoped to have accomplished yeah, do you have a plan to lower our rates yeah well look the, the, the only way you get lower rates is through competition so look, i think we need to just we need to acknowledge that you can't legislate you can't mandate lower rates it, it mm-hmm. it's historically proven not to work the only way to do it is have someone that wants to offer you their product for a dollar less, and, and that's through competition. So, you know, what we've got to do is 
look at what makes Louisiana competitive. How do we make Louisiana more competitive? And your question, Louis, about the special session. Okay, so we've had someone that's been sitting in that seat for 17 years. I, I would say that their, their term was born out of the crisis of Katrina and Rita. So they've had 17 years to think of how do we improve the state, how do we make it more competitive, what can we do? We get to a point where, you know, a special session was, was called, and the solu- it's, one, it's a one-shot wonder solution. It's literally a silver bullet, even though this, I hear it all the time, there is no such thing in a silver bullet, and, and I believe that. There is no such thing, but that's what it was presented as. We do this, and we're going to save Louisiana homeowners. Well, it's not happening. Florida has had... You know, they had one hurricane last year, and their crisis is as bad, if not worse, than Louisiana's. Last year, their legislature had two special sessions, one in May and one in December, I believe. The first special session Florida had, there were six or seven items that they brought. The second special session they had, uh, you know, maybe half a dozen again, and I don't remember the count exactly. But we have a special session called at the behest of the commissioner, and he brings one solution. As commissioner, I would have come with a package. I mean, we've got some regulatory challenges in Louisiana. We are not a regulatory – we're not a friendly state for insurance companies to do business. And we have to acknowledge that insurance companies, they get to choose where they put their capital at at risk. And if they want to write business in, let's just say, the coastal states, you've got Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. They get to choose where they do business. If we're the most heavily regulated, most difficult state to do business with – why do you want to choose to Louisiana? So, so that's what we have to acknowledge is that we are not a competitive state. So, so to, to, to long-winded answer, right, insurance is complex. There is no simple solution. But I would have come with a package to address regulatory changes, some statutory changes. You know, we need to look at, you know, our legal environment is one of the most challenging in the country. We need to, you know, there, there's some good ideas out there. Work with the legislature. Work with you know this next session or next year. We're going to have a new governor. We're going to have a new attorney general, new treasurer, new commissioner of insurance. We're going to have you know a handful of new legislators. Work with that team to develop some 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 long lasting changes that are going to bring new companies to Louisiana. Because again, lower rates or competitive rates, you need more companies here. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keel Mike and McCarty Aaron uh, Aaron is still out recuperating from shoulder surgery. Uh, Scott Hughes in with us and uh, if I see her at Mardi Gras throwing beads, and we're having words, <laughs> catching beads, raising her arms above her head, throwing something, Mister. Yeah, no, she's not doing that. But uh, she, I hope she's recovering well. So hopefully she'll get an early release, but if not, it'll be uh, uh, toward the middle of next week that uh, that she'll be back. Um, we were talking about insurance, and and we've got you about just had the insurance two minutes, yeah. guy. Yeah, Tim Temple. Um, and one of the things that that you and I were talking about off, off mic was the the insurance commissioner really has nothing to do with auto insurance rates in Louisiana. Well, and, and this was interesting to and, me. And, and I would stop short of nothing. I mean, he, certainly he is he has something to do with that. But I think when people look at insurance rates, what you're looking at is you're looking at the litigation. You're looking at the cost of litigation. Ultimately, wrecks happen, and ultimately, attorneys and a lot of them advertise maybe on billboards and TV commercials. They file lawsuits, and when you've ever been in a lawsuit, you get to a weird moment where 
the insurance company has to look at the cost of defending the lawsuit, going to court, mm-hmm. quote unquote, versus a settlement check. And so you regularly get this, this magical moment called cost of settlement. If it's going to cost me $100,000 to go to court and actually go in court, you know, be there for weeks, do depositions, but I can settle it for $75,000? The better business decision is to settle it for the insurance company. Well, so, the actual damages could be ten thousand dollars. Damages could be ten or twenty thousand dollars. But right. but you're suing, so we have to go to court to figure out what the actual damages are. But we're going to spend real money along the way, so you get what's cost, called cost of defense settlements. And that I believe, particularly on car insurance. Now that's what we're talking about: is car mm-hmm. insurance. Car, right. When you're talking about some other insurance, catastrophic insurance, that's a different business scenario. The insurance commissioner has a lot to do with that, but so do hurricanes and hail and storms. Right. Right. which are getting probably worse if we look at some things. But on car insurance, it's really more the legislature, and as I appreciate and have watched it for the years, it comes down to really a ticker, what's the threshold where you can have a jury trial? And I think if you looked at Louisiana law, which the insurance commissioner doesn't control, he or she can make recommendations, but ultimately it's 144 people in the legislature that vote for that. They can change right. that anytime they want to. Yeah, And, and them being lawyers... A lot of them seem to be attorneys. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't look like things are going to change. And the trial lawyers have a very strong political operation. Mayor Tom Arsenault going to join us uh, in studio. Coming up in about 10 minutes from right now, stay with us. Mikey McCarty with Scott. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keo, Mike and McCarty and uh Scott Hughes in studio with us, as well as Shreveport Mayor Tom Arsenault. First, thanks for uh getting dressed. I know you you're heading straight to work after this. I don't I mean am, getting dressed, you. I mean dressed up. We got royalty all over the building. I know. We got Mardi Gras people in the hall and we got the mayor here with us. Well, uh just real quick this segment we've got about one minute here. Um First fifty days in in office. What what uh, what's your assessment? Well, I think I think we're doing uh, well. I'm I'm growing into the position. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. You don't. It's different than anything else that I've ever done. And so, one of the uh, things that struck me what, that I remember during the campaign, uh, it was like there are things you just won't know until you get there. That's you right. can't plan for. You can't prepare right. until you get there. Yeah, and uh, I, fortunately, I have a a great uh, senior assistant, uh, Tari Bradford, who has uh, worked for two U.S. senators and and performed the same was in the same role with Mayor Ali Tyler for four years. So uh, she really knows the protocols and knows kind of how to set up my schedule, which has been extremely helpful. Then I've got two other folks that that just I have a wonderful personal staff that are helping me grow into the position. Mm-hmm. We're learning who to see, uh, you know, how how to plan my day, you know, because it, there has to be time for thinking and stra- and, and reading and studying. Strategizing. Strategizing, <laughs> yes. And it would be really easy to pack my day with just appointment after appointment after appointment, which would result in a lot of motion but very little progress. Any permanent staff decisions have been made yet? Uh, 
I'm working. I, I'm I'm in the process of making, uh, getting ready to make an appointment for a permanent city attorney, and uh, I think fairly shortly I'll have uh, a CAO and finance director uh, appointments, and I'm very excited about those. They're still not quite in place, but I think they will okay. be. Well, st- stand by. We got to we got to take a break, but uh, you're going to be with us the next segment. We got a lot more to talk about. Sure. Mayor Tom Arsenault in with Mike and McCarty, Scott Hughes, 1017 FM. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keo, Mike and McCarty, Scott Hughes in for uh, the recuperating Aaron McCarty. We're talking with Shreveport Mayor Tom Arsenault in studio. Tom, uh, I know a tough day yesterday. Um, this is just uh, we're t- talking about the Shreveport police officer charged with negligent homicide uh, in the death of Alonzo Bagley, and this this just. This is just a hard situation all the way around. State police released the video. How did that go, Tom, from the city side? How were you informed by the state police? Did, I'm assuming you've seen the video. I have. How seen did it. that go from the city side? The uh, the, the state police gave me the uh, the courtesy of viewing the uh, the video before uh, the family viewed it, so I would just know what they were going to see. Um, and uh, they actually had prepared, uh, I presume, a, a nearly final draft of the. They sent. I don't know if y'all have seen it, but there's a. It's a communique. It's basically mm-hmm. a narrative, very very well done, mm-hmm. and it showed the thoroughness of what they were doing. The nine one one call goes all the way through it, everything. It does. Both it body does. And fairly neutral. I did give the state police credit. You did. It's a fairly neutral presentation. It, it is, and and uh, you know it's. Uh, Look, it's it's very very hard to watch, and I cannot imagine how the family felt uh, watching uh, Mr. Bagley get shot and and watching the aftermath of that. It, uh, I just really I really feel for them, and I know it's very difficult for them. Uh, I'm sure it is also difficult for the for the officer's family, um, and so it's just it's just a, a difficult situation. My my concentration this week has been on the Bagley family because they have lost a loved one. He's uh, his funeral is scheduled for tomorrow, and uh, I'm I'm glad that they were able to view the video and get some some means of steps toward closure before uh, before the funeral so i uh, that timing worked out well all of us would have liked it to have been immediate but that's not the way a criminal investigation goes and one in your control and so you saw it the family has seen it everyone's seen it by now but the family saw it um we saw a press conference yesterday a news conference i'm not sure the, the word was but you and the council and the chief was there how, how did that come about the uh i i received some um First of all, it was necessary for the city to, to make a statement mm-hmm. concerning it. Uh, we we really waited to make a statement until the end, uh, as a city, until the end of the state police investigation because, one, they had requested that we do that, and, two, it was just the most appropriate thing to do. It required some patience, and, and it required uh, getting a few barbs, but, uh, uh, frankly, I got some really, uh, good counsel and suggestions, particularly from the black members of the council who suggested ways to, uh, to address the situation in a calming, in a calming and respectful way. 
I took those suggestions. Uh, it, it helped, I think, to to uh, bring us closer together, and, uh, and I am greatly appreciative, particularly uh, to uh, Chairman Green and to Vice Chairperson uh, Taylor, who were very instrumental in helping me decide uh, how to approach that press conference uh, that press conference yesterday. I know there are people that have said um, that this particular, and I do not want to try him in the court of public opinion. That's not what I'm. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to do, but that he was scheduled for a disciplinary hearing for a previous event uh, for that day is, and, and I only bring that up to say, is the the screening process for hiring, uh, you know, new officers, does that need to be reviewed? Is there, I know it's difficult getting officers. Uh, right now they're, they're trying to fill positions. We're 120, I think 125 officers short now. But is there, is there, you know, a need to look at that screening process uh, in the hiring process? We will look at the screening process. Uh, you know, I, 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 there's nothing that I see that indicates that uh, there was necessarily something wrong with the screening process. That okay. doesn't mean that you can't improve the screening process. And uh, as the chief said yesterday, I think we we have to do that. This is an occasion to say, okay, is there is there something in this that we missed? Um, uh, is there something in the training process or the uh, deceleration training process that we ought to be doing that we are not doing? Uh, those are questions that we have to ask, and of course they'll be put under a microscope in, in the context of litigation as well. So uh, it, any occasion, any tragedy like this, any major public moment is an opportunity to reassess what you're doing and try and find out how you could improve what you're doing. Not that what you were doing was defective, but could it be even better than what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we'll be looking. Yeah, because it, 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 um, before you got here last hour, we actually kind of looked at the charges, actually negligent homicide. Right. And um, and I don't know if you're a defense attorney or not. I know you're an attorney. But when you go through negligent homicide, there's a two-part standard. One seems to involve an animal that, that is in your control. The other seems to be the killing of a human being by criminal negligence. And so then you get to the definition of criminal negligence, which we went over, which doesn't seem to intend. It's sort of like an accidental thing. And if you watch the video, as painful as it is, um, it doesn't look like he intended to kill the guy. Um, the key issue, as I watched the video, Tom, backing up through training, is it began with a response to a domestic violence call. And I think right. that we see that a lot. And I don't know from the police side as the mayor, because I, I, I'm, like, I'm like Mike, and I don't think we want to get into the incidents that take place in the pursuit. Once he starts pursuing, that's what's going to, the criminal side is going to go on. But let's back up and deal with how can the police, how can we look at the domestic violence? Because this happens a lot, that we start out knocking on a door and because I'll, we have domestic violence. And I'll tell you, those are the most dangerous calls an officer can get called on. And here's, here's the example. They, they show up to respond to a call to help somebody and within i think about two minutes of the knock on the door we end up in the alley behind the other apartment building with a dead human being and so uh, it's less it's less than two minutes i think mm-hmm. it, I, I think one of the body cams is like a minute and eight seconds mm-hmm. and so, so how, how, very how very get, very short period is that of part time. of the overall answer here let's step away from yeah. the legal issue the domestic violence side how can we handle those calls better um i 
I am I am a, a mayor and not a police training officer, so I don't think that I am competent to address that question. That's something that that will be done. Um, I didn't see it, anything it, it in the video to me, that they appeared, did wrong. It appeared to me that they were trying to decelerate the circumstance, mm-hmm. trying to separate the parties, uh, and uh, and make sure that they were not in a position to harm each other. And uh, and and then it kind of went downhill from there. But uh, that's the thing. Uh, that is certainly one of the things that the that the police will be looking at to see. Okay, is there? Uh, and and now we have some to say. Okay, this is what these guys did. You can go. You can take that to experts and say, what is your critique of what this was done? And you can compare that to your training and say, is there something else that we ought to be doing, that we ought to be teaching, that we ought to equip these officers with? You made the comment earlier, Mike, uh, domestic, uh, domestic violence uh, call, uh, <clears throat> domestic abuse call is really, <clears throat> excuse me, is really one of the uh, hardest calls for a mm-hmm. police officer to make because they really don't have any idea whether they're walking into somebody using a fist, using a knife, using a gun. Well, you're already they, walking they just into don't an have accelerated an situation. Uh, you, you know that they're angry. They're angry parties that are in there, or, or there wouldn't have been a call. And so uh, I, I feel for any police officer that gets called on uh, domestic, and and they, you know, they even now have to worry about about traffic stops you know oh, absolutely we have, we have police officers that have been shot and killed just making an ordinary traffic stop so uh they are certainly at risk and we, we need were, to we find out how best nothing no such thing as an ordinary traffic stop there is no ordinary traffic yeah. stop and and there certainly is no ordinarily uh ordinary domestic abuse calls so absolutely you, you know but the question for us is how can we better equip our officers to step into that emotionally charged circumstance? That's really what the issue is. It isn't uh, it, it, the process itself will determine from now the actual ramifications of this particular event. Mayor. The, we're up against a hard break. I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. But uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in, and we'll we'll, we'll continue. Uh, Micah McCarty, Scott Hughes in studio with this 1017 FM 17. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keel, Mike and McCarty. That's that's just a tough situation. That, that's appreciate a, the mayor that's coming in. That's a very in. tough situation. I appreciate the mayor coming in. Um I you know, we've we've interviewed the mayor before, you've interviewed him. Um you you could just tell it it it, it takes an emotional toll too on elected officials. Absolutely. The mayor and the council. Um I thought he was it was very interesting to 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 get the little insight of how the council and the mayor work together on this. We've got attorney Dew Thompson who is representing Alexander Tyler, uh the Shreveport police officer being uh, uh, charged with negligent homicide and we'll talk with him after the local news with Mikey McCarty, Scott Hughes in studio 1017 FM.
101.7 FM, 710 Keel, Mike and McCarty, Scott Hughes in studio with this filling in for Aaron on the Jack Spring Electric Newsmaker Hotline, uh, Shreveport Attorney Du Thompson. Du, good morning. Thank you for taking time to join us. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Yes, sir. I know, you, I know you've got a, a busy schedule. Um, you're representing. Tell us about how that came about and, and, and uh, the, what the latest is right now on this situation with the officer-involved shooting. Well, I, as you know, I represent Officer Alexander Tyler, and um, yesterday we were informed that the state police secured an arrest warrant, and once we were notified of the arrest warrant, we immediately uh, had him turned in at Caddo Correctional Center. Uh, we've been compliant throughout this whole process with the investigation, and uh, that was uh, further evidence of that. And then um, thereafter, we had a bond hearing at the Caddo District Court where Officer Tyler's bond was set. And his next court date uh, of April third was also set in place. Do this is Scott Hughes. Good morning. Um, Good morning. Walk us through that. Some of the initial reports indicated that there might not be a bond, and then I think we saw him bonding out. And obviously, we understand how bond works. But um, what, what, what was the bond situation on this case? Well, uh, the initial uh, bond was set at a no bond setting, and I think that was put in place for the district court to have a hearing and gather information prior to setting the bond and once that process was was done a bond was set in what i believe was uh commensurate to what other similarly situated cases have been set in the past we've had other police officer uh involved deaths in the past in custody deaths and those bonds were set along the lines of what officer tyler got we're talking with Duke Thompson, attorney for Officer Alexander Tyler of the Shreveport Police Department. Uh, do we? Most of us have seen the the body cam footage. Um, at the at the moment of the of the shooting, Officer Tyler appeared to be very shocked and uh, very surprised. Uh, in in was working, you know, along with the other officer uh, to perform, you know, uh, first aid and CPR. What what is what is Officer Tyler's? Um, where is he right now as far as uh, his 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 condition? How is how is he dealing with this? Well, he's very upset. He's very emotional about all this. As I've stated before, no good officer wants to be put in this position. And, you know, we have so many good officers with the Shreveport Police Department, and they go out each and every night on their patrol with the one mission in mind is to come home alive and safe and to protect and serve. And to that extent, they don't want to be put in this situation, and they don't go out there stating, I I want to shoot somebody. Sure. And so to that effect, being put in this situation obviously upset him, and that was shown in the body camera footage. I mean, he was not cavalier about it. He was very upset, mm-hmm. and, uh, immediately rendered aid, and it's just an unfortunate situation for all involved. It, it, it is, dude. I think you just kind of gave a great summation. If you watch it, they do go immediate aid. You can actually hear the ambulance coming in the background if you listen to the tape. Ultimately, the charge is, and I'm not an attorney, do. Ultimately, the charge is negligent homicide. And I think we look at the first definition, killing of a human being by criminal negligence. And I believe there's a presumptive evidence standard. And I think we get down to what the definition of criminal negligence is. Um, as, as the defense attorney, going into court, defending the officer, what, what, what is the defense? What is the standard you have to go to to, um, to kind of, I hate to say fight the charge, but to defend your client? What, what, what's, what, what is this case going to swing around? 
Well, you know, and again, unfortunately, I'm kind of limited on what I can discuss with the case itself unless it's already in the public record. But to the extent that I can comment on uh, the charge itself, you know, a gross negligence uh, by the statute definition means that there's a, a deviation below what an ordinary person would do in a standard of care situation. And the examples I used to uh, give from my career as a prosecutor were cases like where you saw people drag racing down King's Highway and a death occurs, even though they didn't mean for a death to occur, there's a gross negligence by drag racing down a road where there's no pedestrians. Yeah, that, that, that's a common example of gross negligence. Um, in a case like this, I think the theory would be that he deviated below his training standards and uh, committed gross negligence in the killing of a human being. So it's, it's not an intentional homicide, it's a gross negligence analysis so has there been a a, a a trial date set is there what's the next step from here well from here the case is in the district attorney's hands and the district attorney has several options one he can decline the case or two he can uh charge the case uh on on their own or three they can send it to grand jury and see what the grand jury says about it but uh, i anticipate that we'll have an arraignment on April 3rd. And and, and, I, and again, we're not attorneys, do. We often hear some of these cases, they get jurisdictional change. Is this one you believe, if it went to court, because I heard you say it might, you know, assuming it goes to court, is this you believe it would be heard in Cattle Parish or it would be would the jurisdiction perhaps be moved due to the media coverage? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll we're, we're certainly uh, compiling all the evidence of the media coverage so far right now, which has been extensive and it's, very concerning, especially what uh, I feel is some irresponsible narrative that's been put out there, and that's always a concern in tainting a potential jury pool. So we will certainly address that if necessary when the time comes. And I believe I saw you last night on at least one of the national news channels. And it, 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 as, as the defense attorney, what has the national interest in this story been based on the national narrative related to um, police-involved shootings? Well, well, well again, I mean – there's a lot of media coverage with it, and as we've seen on the national trend, there's a lot of interest in these type of cases. So, unfortunately, that brings uh, extensive media coverage in cases like this when it's unwanted. Um, but to that extent, uh, we're having to battle that narrative as well, not only in the courtroom but in the court of public interest, unfortunately. And for Officer Tyler, um, what is his actual disposition at this point? We know he's been arrested. He's out on bond. Is he on leave with pay? I mean, what, what is his status within the department at this point? What do you see the future he, he, for that? He, he is on uh, paid administrative leave, and that's state law. And he'll be on that status until the resolution of these cases. Uh, do Thompson, thank you so much, uh, uh, Shreveport attorney. We appreciate your time. Uh, it, it, you know, you said a moment ago, it's just a tragic situation all around, and our thoughts or prayers are, are with everybody involved. And, and we thank you for t- talking with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. 1017 FM, 710. Tell me how you're healing Cause I'm about
101.7 FM, 710 Keel, Mike and McCarty with Scott Hughes in for Aaron. Uh, yeah, a lot of discussion, a lot of discussion off mic. Uh, we were talking about uh, uh, changing gears just a little bit. The, the uh, President Biden uh, ordering three other objects, which is the word that's, that's being used all week, objects, without knowing what those objects were. Unidentified flying objects? Uh, apparently. That's what they were. UFOs? That doesn't mean they're extraterrestrial objects. Anything, if you don't know what it is, that's an unidentified, an unidentified flying object. Um, so how can he say, well, they, weren't definite, they definitely weren't from China? Well, how do you know that if you don't know what they were? Well, half the things in the world are made in China, so they're ultimately from China these days. <laughs> right. But, no, I, I think the point is, and what you and I were talking about is, um, you know, shooting a target that target down out of the sky that you had not identified, and um, and then the, the point I was making is, you know, he didn't shoot the first one down, and people kind of politically laughed at him, and Absolutely. he got attacked for not shooting down the first one. So I think that you know the government was kind of trigger happy over the weekend. We shot down some things we we didn't know exactly what they were. Um, we need to appear strong. We're not going to let this happen again. We can answer that. Look, no, we're, we've taken action. And so it raises the bigger question is what's the policy? You know, do you shoot everything down? Do you shoot nothing down? Do we have to completely identify it before we shoot it down? If it's not responsive, do you shoot it down? I think, I think they're going to take a deep look because I think the bigger picture, if you step back from all of the balloons and targets and things, you come to the realization that we live in a world where there's a lot of stuff floating around up there that it's always there and we just don't care about it till we care about it and it'll go away it's the news of this week um and they'll figure out a better way to identify and track and what's really a threat to us i think that's what you got to come back to but you said uh we were talking earlier you said that the the chinese balloon the first incident the big one, the one the size the, of three buses that we shot down over South Carolina coast. That you said was originally sent by China to spy over Hawaii. No question. And, and if you watch the language now, they're now referring to that one as the spy balloon. The spy yeah, balloon, The other three right. are unidentified, but that one was the spy balloon. And, and I keep following it, and I think I told you last week, earlier this week, I always like to sit back and watch, don't knee-jerk react. And mm-hmm. what seems to be what's coming out now is, yes, that was a Chinese spy balloon, no question asked. Where the Chinese got indignant was they had sent it to the Hawaii-Guam area. They knew what they were doing. They were looking on the islands that, in theory, are closer to them in the Pacific but but if you understand international law, they very easily and often probably spy on those places because all they have to do is be out in international water. And so they can have a balloon, you know, five, ten miles off the coast, whatever the line is, and they're in international water. They can do that all day long. Because There's, we have military installations. And we're flying all over there. spy planes ten miles off their coast watching them. That right. takes place all day long. They're watching things. What apparently happened was um, the jet stream. It literally it literally got caught up in that big it storm really jet did stream. Get caught up in the and jet if stream. If you ever look at the jet stream, it makes a big wave. It goes from the Hawaii area up to Alaska, then it sort of bends back down in the country through the middle part of the country and then out. It literally got caught in the jet stream. They didn't intend for that to happen. Doesn't mean it's right. And so now their spy balloon that was never supposed to actually go over American sovereign space gets sucked into Alaska over you know Montana 
and now it's over the continent of the United States. And the interesting thing that I saw was the Chinese apparently did tell us it was there. We kind of knew it was there, maybe. We knew it was there, obviously. NORAD has acknowledged they watched it the whole time. And we were, as we talked last week, we were counter-spying on it. We saw it as an opportunity to counter-spy and ultimately capture it, shoot it down and capture it. The Chinese were just trying to quickly fly it out of the country. They wanted to get it out of our airspace, and they were kind of miffed when we shot it down. So I remember the first of the week when we were talking, one of the discussions was that over Alaska, you said it took a right turn. It took a right turn as if it were being controlled. I think so the Chinese aren't telling the, the full truth. I okay. do think that. I mean, that's, put yourself in their shoes. You weren't necessarily. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. You weren't necessarily intending to send this thing over the continent of the United States. You really were spying on Hawaii and Guam, but through a weird deal, it ends up in the jet stream headed over the United States. You're not going to not take the opportunity to keep it running. Well, sure. I mean, you've got it there. Absolutely. And they clearly did that. They clearly tried to fly it in places while it was coming over the country. But it became this weird counter-spy, counter-spy game because we knew what it was doing. We were counter-spying. As I pointed out before, they have satellites a few 10,000 more feet up that are doing the same thing. So this is not unusual that there's things looking at us. But we then we then watched it. And then we shot it down over the coast and captured it. The other three, we have no idea what they are. And, and I joked last week, I would be putting a balloon up right now over the Midwest. That would be kind of scary. I saw J- uh, Joe Concha on Fox News, and he said uh, it was his birthday. And he said, yeah, my wife got me a hot air balloon ride. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> so, yeah, you got to be careful. Be uh, Scott careful. Hughes in for Aaron McCarty, 101.7 FM. Seven FM, seven ten Keo, Mike and McCarty, uh, Aaron still recuperating from her shoulder surgery. Scott Hughes in studio with us. Uh, coming up next, we spoke with Mayor Tom Arsenault. He was in studio with us this morning, uh, talking about his first fifty days in office, and of course the tragic situation from uh, from last week. And, and you'll hear that conversation next. Seven ten. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keo, Mike and McCarty, Scott Hughes in for uh, the recuperating Aaron McCarty. We're talking with Shreveport Mayor Tom Arsenault in studio. Tom, uh, I know a tough day yesterday. Um, this is just uh, we're t- talking about the Shreveport police officer charged with negligent homicide uh, in the death of Alonzo Bagley, and this this just. This is just a hard situation all the way around. State police released the video. How did that go, Tom, from the city side? How were you informed by the state police? Did, I'm assuming you've seen the video. I have. How seen. did that go from the city side? The uh, the, the state police gave me the uh, the courtesy of viewing the uh, the video before uh, the family viewed it, so I would just know what they were going to see. Um, and uh, they actually had prepared, uh, I presume, a, a 
nearly final draft of the they sent i don't know if y'all have seen it but there's a it's a communique it's basically mm-hmm. a narrative very very well done mm-hmm. and it showed the thoroughness of what they were doing but get the 911 call goes all the way through it, everything it does Both it, it body does. and fairly footage. neutral i did give the state police credit you did it's a fairly neutral presentation it, it is and and uh you know it's uh look it's it's very very hard to watch and i cannot imagine how the family felt uh watching uh mr bagley get shot and and watching the aftermath of that it uh, i just really i really feel for them and i know it's very difficult for them uh, i'm sure it is also difficult for the for the officer's family um and so it's just it's just a, a difficult situation my my concentration this week has been on the bagley family because they have lost a loved one he's uh, his funeral is scheduled for tomorrow and uh, I'm, I'm glad that they were able to view the video and get some some means of steps toward closure before uh, before the funeral. So I, uh, that timing worked out well. All of us would have liked it to have been immediate, but that's not the way a criminal investigation goes. And wasn't in your control. And so you saw it. The family has seen it. Everyone's seen it by now, but the family saw it. Um, we saw a press conference yesterday, a news conference. I'm not sure the, the word was, but you and the council and the chief was there. How, how did that come about? The uh, I, I received some... Um, First of all, it was necessary for the city to, to make a statement mm-hmm. concerning it. Uh, we, we really waited to make a statement until the end, uh, as a city, until the end of the state police investigation because, one, they had requested that we do that, and, two, it was just the most appropriate thing to do. It required some patience, and, and it required – uh, getting a few barbs, but uh, uh, frankly, I got some really uh, good counsel and suggestions, particularly from the black members of the council who suggested ways to um, to address the situation in a calming in a calming and respectful way. I took those suggestions. Uh, it it helped, I think, to to. Uh, bring us closer together, and uh, and I am greatly appreciative, particularly uh, to uh, Chairman Green and to Vice Chairperson uh, Taylor, who were very instrumental in helping me decide uh, how to approach that press conference. Uh, that press conference yesterday. I know there are people that have said um, that this particular, and I do not want to try him in the court of public opinion. That's not what I'm. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to do, but that he was scheduled for a disciplinary hearing for a previous event uh, for that day is, and, and I only bring that up to say, is the the screening process for hiring, uh, you know, new officers, does that need to be reviewed? Is there, I know it's difficult getting officers, uh, right now, they're they're trying to fill positions. We're 120, I think, 125 officers short now. But is there is there you know a need to look at that screening process uh, in the hiring process? We will look at the screening process. Uh, you know, I, I, I there's nothing that I see that indicates that. Uh, there was necessarily something wrong with the screening process. That okay. doesn't mean that you can't improve the screening process. And uh, as the chief said yesterday, I think we we have to do that. This is an occasion to say, okay, is there is there something in this that we missed? Um, 
uh, is there something in the training process or the uh, deceleration training process that we ought to be doing that we are not doing? Uh, those are questions that we have to ask, and of course they'll be put under a microscope in, in the context of litigation as well. So uh, it, any occasion, any tragedy like this, any major public moment is an opportunity to reassess what you're doing and try and find out how you could improve what you're doing. Not that what you were doing was defective, but could it be even better than what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we'll be looking. Yeah, because it, 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 um, before you got here last hour, we actually kind of looked at the charges, actually negligent homicide. Right. And um, and I don't know if you're a defense attorney or not. I know you're an attorney. But when you go through negligent homicide, there's a two-part standard. One seems to involve an animal that, that is in your control. The other seems to be the killing of a human being by criminal negligence. And so then you get to the definition of criminal negligence, which we went over, which doesn't seem to intend. It's sort of like an accidental thing. And if you watch the video, as painful as it is, um, it doesn't look like he intended to kill the guy. Um, the key issue, as I watched the video, Tom, backing up through training, is it began with a response to a domestic violence call. And I think right. that we see that a lot. And I don't know from the police side as the mayor, because I, I, I'm, like, I'm like Mike, and I don't think we want to get into the incidents that take place in the pursuit. Once he starts pursuing, that's what's going to the criminal side is going to go on. But let's back up and deal with how can the police, how can we look at the domestic violence? Because this happens a lot that we start out knocking on a door and because I'll, we have domestic violence. And I'll tell you, those are the most dangerous calls an officer can get called on. And here's, here's the example. They, they show up to respond to a call to help somebody, and within, I think, about two minutes of the knock on the door, we end up in the alley behind the other apartment building with a dead human being, and so yeah. it's less. It's less than two minutes. I think. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think one of the body cams is like a minute and eight seconds. Mm-hmm. And so, it's how, a how very, back very, up very short. Period is that of part time. of the overall answer here? Let's step away from yeah. the legal issue, the domestic violence side. How can we handle those calls better? Um, I, I, I am, I am a, a mayor and not a police training officer, so I don't think that I am competent to address that question that's something that that will be done um, i didn't see it, anything it, it in the video to me that they appeared, did wrong it appeared to me that they were trying to decelerate the circumstance mm-hmm. trying to separate the parties uh and uh and make sure that they were not in a position to harm each other and uh and and then it kind of went downhill from there but uh, that's the thing. Uh, that is certainly one of the things that the that the police will be looking at to see. Okay, is there? Uh, and and now we have something to say. Okay, this is what these guys did. You can go. You can take that to experts and say, what is your critique of what this was done? And you can compare that to your training and say, is there something else that we ought to be doing? That we ought to be teaching? That we ought to equip these officers with? You made the comment earlier, Mike, uh, domestic, uh, domestic violence uh, call, uh, <clears throat> domestic abuse call is really, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is really one of the uh, hardest calls for a mm-hmm. police officer to make because they really don't have any idea whether they're walking into somebody using a fist, using a knife, using a gun. Well, you're already they, walking they just into don't an have accelerated an situation. Uh, you, you know that they're angry. They're angry parties that are in there, or, or there wouldn't have been a call. And so, uh, I I feel for any police officer that gets called on uh, domestic, and and they you know they even now have to worry about 
about traffic stops. You know, oh, absolutely. We have, we have police officers that have been shot and killed just making an ordinary traffic stop. So uh, they are certainly at risk. And we, we need were, to we find out how best. Nothing, no such thing as an ordinary traffic stop. There is no ordinary traffic yeah. stop, and, and there certainly is no ordinarily, uh, ordinary domestic abuse calls. So, Absolutely. You, you know, but the question for us is how can we better equip our officers to step into that emotionally charged circumstance? That's really what the issue is. It isn't uh, – it, 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 the process itself will determine from now the actual ramifications of this particular event. How many times did you hear that song on the way to school? <laughs> Rockford Files. One oh one seven FM seven ten Keo Mike and McCarty. Uh Aaron recuperating shoulder surgery. Hopefully uh, next week she'll get her release. Uh but it's probably going to be middle to the end of the week. Uh Scott Hughes graciously agreeing to sit in with us this morning and I think you'll be back on Monday. I I'll be back on Monday. President's but between Day. now and then we have a weekend. And what a weekend. Wow. Busy weekend this weekend. Mardi Gras, we have, I think we have Gemini Parade um, this weekend. We didn't get to get them on the air, but we did have some of the crew in the building today. Yeah. About beads. Uh, Stacy Smith, was it, what was the name? Of, it's on the it's on the medallion. Uh, John and Stacy Smith. John and Stacy uh, Smith. The Duke and Duchess the of Duke, the Gemini. Yeah. They, we had some news in. to cover, but they were here, and so we want to say our apologies. But Gemini rolls yes. on Saturday. Three o'clock. Looks like great weather. Beautiful weekend in Highland Columbus. Rolls I'm on very Sunday. Two Always one of the great parades. <laughs> Highland is at two o'clock. Yeah, Highland rolls at two. Okay, glad so, you said that. Yeah. Great parade, and then I'll and, and, and then I'll give my plug. There are still three teams playing in the high school <laughs> soccer tournament. Loyola Flyers play today. If you're in town, the Loyola Lady Flyers play at four thirty at Mesmer Field. Local, okay. Local. So they here play in locally. town. They play a pistol. Well, they're ranked number one in their division. The um, Cattle Magnet um, Ladies, that's my daughter's team. We're going to Lafayette tomorrow to play St. Thomas Moore in the state semifinal. And the Bozier Boys play at home this weekend. They're ranked number two in the state. That's only three teams left in the state playoffs. So you're heading Ooh. down south uh, We're heading afternoon. down south. St. Thomas Moore is the five-time state defending champions. And we're going to play them at their place. They're ranked number three in the nation. Wow. And we're going in, and we hope to beat them. I'll let you know Monday how it goes. Yeah. I mean, hey, you're on you the take field. Your shot. You got a chance. You get in the playoffs. All you can do is play the game you have next. And and for us, it's five time champion. We'll take our shot. Scott, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Ruben. One hundred and seventeen FM, seventeen Keel.